0: I'm Mitch McCracken, and this is Memphis Music Interview, Memphis Music History, told from the inside. Today's guest is an incredible musician who was with the American Studio Session Band known as the 827 Thomas Street Band, who in one week had 25% of Billboard's Top 100. Those songs not only came from the same studio, but featured the same band backing a variety of artists. Between 1967 and 1971, the Memphis Boys recorded 122 top 10 records using the same team, something that was never achieved before or since. I'm honored to have with me today from the 827 Thomas Street Band, later known as the Memphis Boys, Mr. Bobby Wood. How you doing today, Bobby? I'm doing good. So, what's it like working with Garth Brooks?
1: Oh, well, it's been a blessing, I can tell you, man. It's just, I ain't that good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Is he as friendly as he seems?
1: Yeah, he, he's he been like a brother to me. I mean, it's, it's just like I've kind of uh, latched on to uh, just a real um, fantastic brother, you know. That uh, And uh, he, he's he been that way to the, all of the band that started with him. I, we started with him in 88, uh, 89, I guess it was. Yeah, from the first day, and uh, been with him ever since. I think he's done a few projects, you know, a few songs, that, you know, with bluegrass groups and different stuff, you know, whatever the song called for. But for the most part, we've been on ninety nine percent of everything, you know. So,
0: do you go out on the road with him?
1: No, uh, I don't. Uh, I'm too old for one thing, man. I'm, I can barely get to the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they may they may think the insurance may be a little too high for me. <laughs> I told them I'd go out with him, but we'd have to have walkers and ambulances and everything else. <laughs> Stand by.
0: <laughs> so how did your road to success get started?
1: Yeah, my it started with my grandpa. He took music through the mail back in early 1900s, I, I guess. And uh, so him and my dad traveled, uh, you know, from church to church, and, and they would go to a church and spend the week with the kids, and their payment a lot of times was fruit and vegetables out of people's gardens, and, uh, and then Saturday night, the, uh, the, the moms and dads were, would come in and hear, the, hear what their, their kids were singing, you know, so <laughs> that's what they did.
0: Okay, that was your father or grandfather?
1: That uh, was my grandfather. My dad, uh, he kind of followed suit. My grandfather had ten kids and, uh, it was, uh, it wasn't no if, ands, or maybe. You either had to play something or sing. One of the two. And then my dad followed suit, and so he had six kids.
0: And you had your own hit early in your career, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I had a hit record back in 64. You know, I say hit, it, it, it wasn't a hit everywhere. It was on a small label, but still it sold like a quarter of a million records. I was out touring with uh, J. Frank Wilson. He had out Last Kiss, the original Version of that, and Gene Simmons had out haunted house, and Murray Kellum had out long tall Texan, and Travis Womack had a record uh, instrumental called Scratchy. So we took a, a band, and I think they hired a band from, I want to say up in Michigan or someplace, and uh, they met us at a certain point, and we was going down the road 500 miles a day uh, for. Four or five days, I guess, and got into about the fifth concert, and we decided to leave Wheeling, West Virginia, I think it was, and go back to Lima, Ohio, which was a big stretch that night, so we could get some rest and uh uh you know it's one of those things where you know we we all took turns driving and uh Merkelum's car they were behind us with him and gene simmons and and uh travis i think it was and then me and jay frank was in the, the car in front it was ray bane ray brown's station wagon uh, ray was the uh, uh booking agent so he booked us a tour and we're in five days and I pulled over and said, I've driven as long as I can, about one o'clock in the morning or two. And and then Jay Frank's manager was with us and he took over and we got within about 18, 20 miles out of Lima. And uh, Jay Frank's manager went to sleep and we hit a semi head on and uh, I stuck in the windshield Lost my right eye and whole right side of my face was couldn't put your finger where there weren't, weren't stitches, you know. So they thought, you know, I was I wasn't going to be around. But I guess uh, the good Lord had different plans. So. I was home. I was back I was yeah I was back in Memphis within two weeks and uh, so uh, things didn't work out real well with having another hit and by this time this one was going off the charts and so I had an opportunity to go into uh, we were already working at Phillips Studio me and Gene Chrisman and then Reggie and Bobby and Tommy Cogbill and some of the other guys was working down at High in different places. So people from Nashville would come in, the publishers, and they would hire like the five of us or six of us and put us together. So Chip's Moment came through and I want to say, around 65, 66, some, somewhere like that, and opened up 8, 827 Thomas Street over Thomas and Chelsea in American Studio. And we all ended up over there, and and uh, we didn't know to. 1972, when we moved to what we had done, you know, we didn't realize we worked We show up a studio at noon and and uh, get home at four o'clock, four or five o'clock in the morning, and I uh, didn't even realize till after we moved here that we'd we'd cut 122 chart records in four different charts, including jazz, and we didn't even realize that we'd <laughs> we were just going to work. <laughs> So that's how that happened.
0: You were slow moving over to work with chips. Why was that?
1: Yeah, that was my, uh, the, the four or five of the guys had already gone over there, and because I was an artist and loyal to my producer over at Phillips Studio, Sam Philips Studio, you know, just having a, a big ballad out in those days, and when the twist music and all that was coming through, I mean, if you didn't have any major up-tempo records out, I mean, it was really hard to get decent bookings, you know, and so i kind of dwindled down to the time i pay a band and motel expense and gas. Expense and everything, uh, I might come home with a hundred dollars clear in my pocket, you know. But you know, chips. It, it I'd met Chips over at Albert uh, Phillips, and uh, they had the only lathe in town that you you brought you brought your masters over and and cut the master for the pressing plant. And uh, so uh, I was Cropper and and uh, a lot of different people in town, Ray Harris and. um, uh, then I met Chips uh, over there at the same time too, and so we just kind of developed a, a relationship. And uh, oh, it wasn't long after Chips uh, opened up his studio; none of the guys were there yet. Uh, he would have me to come over and play with some some of his R and B records. You know, he cut big record on Barbara and the Browns called Big Party, and uh, he'd call me over there to help him do projects over there. So anyway we we had a friendship book you know before he opened up american so um that was uh good we used to uh he had bought a little honda hawk motorcycle and i had a sears and Ro- roebuck mo- motorcycle <laughs> <laughs> It was a used piece of junk, you know, <laughs> and uh, we'd uh, we'd ride the streets of Memphis, you know, after hours at night, you know, just go out riding around, you know. So that's uh,
0: now that wasn't one of the scooters with the gas and brake pedals, was it?
1: Uh, no, no, it was a motorcycle. I I, I, th- I think it was like like a you know would be a, like a little one twenty five or one fifty or something like that. It wasn't a big one. And you remember the first Honda Hawk? That's about what it was too. It was about a one fifty or something. But, uh, anyway, we just developed a friendship, and he actually played on my album, uh, in 64. Uh, he played on, uh, the, the Bobby Wood album, and we cut one of his songs, uh, this time. I think Troy, Troy Shondell had that out, and, and, uh, uh, actually put that on my album. But no, we, we had a long-standing, uh, friendship, and course, you know, he worked in the clubs with me, too, around Memphis. So we had a standing engagement out at Starlight Club on the north side of town for a long time, for a couple of years.
0: Were you starstruck meeting Elvis during the infamous comeback sessions at American?
1: I had met Elvis uh, way before those sessions, uh, back when, you know, he was, uh, I guess he was in... Probably around sixty, sixty-one. I know I was dating my my bride to be at that point, and, uh, um, and of course I knew George Klein really well uh, through, you know, I'd, I'd had some small records out before the big one, you know, and uh, I'd be on George's uh, television show, and we got to be buddies, and he invited us out to the uh, amusement park one night, and. Uh, of course, Elvis would go and rent it uh, after midnight and, and keep all the people there, and we'd just go out and ride the rides for three or four hours, you know. And and I got to talk to him briefly then. Uh, but even before that, uh, when he was at Sun Records, uh, we were gospel singers, and we had gone to Memphis at some point when I was about, oh, I want to say, 10, 11 years old, maybe 12. Uh, and our family... And this lady that we knew in Memphis, uh, uh, they would have a big singing convention at the uh, Ellis Auditorium. And uh, so she told my dad, she said, you know, your family is really, really good, man. She says, uh, I know this guy's got a studio and said, would you like to go over and put down a few songs on tape? And my dad said, well, sure. And it ended up being Sam Phillips' old song records. You know? <laughs> yeah, we went over there and put down two or three songs and. Of course, I had, uh, we we had been singing a, at a radio station in Tupelo, my family, and uh, this girl had gone to the, I guess it was the 50, 55 concert in Tupelo or 54, somewhere in there, and she had showed me his picture. She had gotten a picture of him and, and when I was really young, you know, and she said, uh, Uh, this guy's really going to be big man so he is great he put on a great show in chupelo and so you know when we were in memphis back at the studio well you know sam had had recorded us you know on tape and so we got through and i went back out front and uh this guy was sitting behind the desk but i didn't really recognize him he kind of dirty blonde blonde hair and and uh uh, kind of ruddy-faced. I, I guess uh, at that time he was still working at the uh, at the electric company or wherever he was working, and he 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 was all uh, you know un unshaven and everything. <laughs> And so I saw his picture underneath the glass on the desk, and I told Sam, I said, "Hey, I heard about this guy. I said a friend, I said a friend of mine said that this guy was going to be a star, you know." And Sam said, "Well, me Elvis was Presley," and I got all embarrassed. Man, then like, he complimented us on our singing and stuff, and he said, "You know, he said you guys are really good, you know." And I said, "It was nice meeting him." And, I, you know, I, I couldn't have been over 12, I don't guess, at that point. But that was my first first meeting with Elvis. And then uh, after the fairgrounds, and then we were... I, somebody said we were... We had already cut at the time that Elvis came there. I, I believe they said 72 chart records by that time. And uh, so uh, I guess they'd heard uh, um, Hooked on a Feeling and... and uh, and uh, Box Tops Records and uh, uh, Neil Diamond, I guess, by that time, uh, Sweet Caroline. In fact, I think we were supposed to, uh, Neil Diamond was going to be back in on the Monday that they started recording Elvis because they called from Graceland on maybe Saturday night and wanted to know if they could get in Monday. And and Chips actually uh, said, yeah, I guess I can uh, postpone the Neil Diamond and uh, do that later I said yo y'all come in next week it was January sometime I forget when it was Mark James by this time was writing for us and he had written Suspicious Minds he had uh, written uh, Hooked on a Feeling and uh, I'm not sure if they had written Always on My Mind by that time or not but anyway uh, Chips had a bunch of songs and he had an Eddie Rabbit uh, Kentucky Rain song under his belt you know and. So uh, he had some good songs before Elvis even come in, you know, and and then when uh, you know the publishing people hit and immediately wanted the publishing on Suspicious Minds, and Chips just said uh, no. <laughs> And the guy, uh, I forget who he was. He was, I think he was from New York or LA. One, and you know, he did the smart addict thing. And says, "Well, I'll just have to go out and tell Evans that he's not getting published on this stuff." And and he said, "If he walks out, so be it." And ship said, "Fine." that's fine with me. He said, I'll cut this on B.J. Thomas tomorrow and be just big of a hit, you know, because <laughs> B.J. was really, out. B.J. was hotter than Elvis at that point. I didn't realize, but uh, somebody had said that Elvis had been out of charts seven or eight years by that time. I mean, anyway, he, uh, when he came to the studio that night, uh, I mean, I was nervous. I was about to jump out of my skin. I said, oh, my God, we do getting to work with the king, you know, <laughs> and, uh. So uh, I knew when he, I I could feel his presence in the back parking lot. When he, when they was in the back parking lot, I could feel it. And that's, that's how much charisma the guy had. And then when him and his entourage walked in the back door, I mean, I mean, he was bigger than life, man. Everybody just took, choked and took a, back, a step backwards. <laughs> it's like, whoa. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, he walked on into the control room and, And met Chips, and of course Felton was in there, and some other people, and then he came right back out in the studio and shook hands with all of us, I mean, just like, um, just really friendly guy, you know, just really friendly. And uh, after we got all the riff raff out of the way and got down to business with just you know some a few of his guys and us and and our group, you know, uh, I mean we went to work and boy Elvis just got right into what we were doing. I mean you know we 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 didn't really want to cut a bad song on Elvis, you know. I mean we we were there to cut hits on anybody that walked in. It didn't matter if it's him or somebody else, you know. But uh, anyway, I mean he fell into our little production and groove thing, you know, and. Uh, he had a ball. Uh, I guess it was Marty Lacker said that the first or second night, one that he was in the back of the limousine and he hit Marty on the shoulder and said, "I think we got something good here, Marty." And Marty said, "I think you're right, man." And uh, so I don't really think we cut. We had cut one of the big records the first night, but anyway, two or three nights later, I guess we got into suspicious minds and then the ghetto and that stuff. How
0: many songs did you cut with the Elvis?
1: We did somebody said thirty two within two within two weeks. I think it was uh, he came in for a week one time and he was supposed to come in again and hadn't lost his voice and me like we did Don't Cry Daddy or Kentucky Rain without him. He wasn't there and I had to do the the, the vocals on on the song and picking a key was uh, funny too because uh Was getting ready to cut the song, and somebody said, "What key?" And uh, it just dawned on me. I said, "Play some of the stuff we just we we've already done." And they did. And I figured out where his range was, and his range was either a step above mine or a step below it. I think it was I think it was a step above mine. So I had to actually lower the key a whole step and then sing it. You know, and uh, that's in the archives at RCA, some somewhere, I guess, up New York. But uh, anyway, uh, we just did whatever we we had to do. At the point, you know, when Elvis came in and put his vocals on the track that we had already basically finished, uh, he said, "Boy, his key's perfect." <laughs> Chip said, he said uh, he looked at me and said, look, that guy right there was one to pick your key for." you. <laughs> he said, "We well, got it right." But we de- we developed a uh, you know kind of a brotherhood together and. And, uh, I mean, he loved to pull jokes on people, you know, some of his own people. And, and, and I was kind of a jokester myself, too. And we just, we just hit it off right off the bat. And, uh, got the kids around with each other. Uh, you know, I had, uh, most, most of the times he wouldn't come in till, so uh, most, of, a lot of times he wouldn't come in till midnight, you know. And, uh, by this time, my my uh, I'd be rubbing my eye. It would be getting late, you know. So I would would take my eye out and put my eye patch on, you know. And and uh, so he he didn't even know that I'd had a car wreck. He asked George Klein, "Why I was I wearing the eye patch?" And George told him. And but anyway, he uh, got to the place that we'd be sitting around three or four o'clock in the morning in in the control room. He'd look up at me and he, and he said. Uh, uh, hey Wiley, you got the uh, plane warmed up? And I said, What Wiley? He said, Yeah, uh, Will Rogers, his pilot, Wiley Post, had a one eye, you know, and he wore a patch on one of his eyes. <laughs> he started calling me Wiley after that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you got the plane warmed up. I said, This warmed up, just take off, man. <laughs> and I got 20 vision, all up, all those things. <laughs> Yeah, we were on the road with the highway, and we were trying to think of all the I songs, I Only Have I for You, and Blue blue Eye Crying in the Rain. (laughs) I've had a lot of fun with that.
0: Were they calling you the Memphis Boys back then? No,
1: no, that didn't happen until we moved here.
0: Was it just you and Reggie Young that moved to Nashville?
1: No, no, it was all of us. We all moved over. Well, uh, me and Tommy and Mike moved over here. Uh, No, no. Me, Tommy, and Johnny Christopher moved over here. And, uh, of course, Johnny was a regular writer at the studio. And, and uh, of course, he played acoustic guitar down there, too. And later on in the 70s, 70, 70, 71, you know, in those years. And a great acoustic guitar player. But anyway, we came on over here in after the first of the year in 1972. Because we... Me and my family moved in March of 72. And Chips took the rest of the man to Atlanta. So he just closed up shop. And, and of course, our R&B thing had already pretty much dried up. And I think that was probably because of the Martin Luther King's death, you know. And uh, So that was basically gone. And uh, so, uh, you know, I I told Johnny and Tommy, too, I said, you know, We, it's almost like starting over here, so (laughs) I said I could start him in Nashville. So we didn't know Tommy was in Nashville. Me and Johnny came over here one weekend, and the first person we ran into was Tommy. So he was going. So we all three moved in in uh, early 1972, <clears throat> and by G- July or August, I guess, of that year, uh, the rest of them moved up here, in, including Chips. We kind of got separated at that point. You know, we we were just everybody was just playing sessions with whoever called first. You know, and uh, so we kind of got split up. But uh, there was a few people, very few, that would use the whole band as a unit. I don't know. I don't know what it was, if it was Nashville politics or what it was, you know, but anyway, uh, very few people on a Fred Foster would use most of us and Buddy Killen and, and uh, Chip Young and and there was, a, there was a few people in town that used us as a unit and every time we got, almost every time we all got together, we cut a, another big pop record, you know. <laughs> can help was cut with all of us and uh, uh hey won't you play was cut with all of us of course chips wouldn't use anybody but us you know but uh anyway cut we cut a bunch of pop records even after we moved here what
0: was it like moving from pop to country sessions
1: uh i fell in uh, i guess by accident with uh george jones in probably 74 somewhere in there uh Hey, Pig Robbins was, you know, uh, Billy Sherrill's favorite piano player, and, and he's actually mine too. <laughs> but, uh, something happened uh, on uh, George Jones. Uh, it was their, him and Tammy's last album together was a Golden Rings album. And, uh, so Pig it was either double booked or sick or something, and, uh, Billy Sanford, one of them, get Guitar players here in town. Told Cheryl, he says, boy, he said, you know, those Memphis boys has moved to town. He said, uh, keyboard players are pretty good, you know, and Cheryl said, well, call him. And, uh, so I went over and played acoustic piano on the, I believe it was Golden Rings and, and something else. I don't know what it was. So, uh, Cheryl started using me, uh, on the Fender Rhodes piano, the electric piano. Uh, and because it, it had kind of taken over in place of the vibes you know they used to use the vibes the vibraphones um, you know before that but when the Fender Rhodes came along it kind of took the place of the vibes and so i I played for the next 14 years on all of George Jones's records and and uh, with uh, all of Biddy Sherald's artists you know so that worked out real good but how the Memphis boys came around, that's exactly how that came about. Uh, uh, because the people here started calling us, you know, get one of the Memphis boys or two of the Memphis boys or whatever. And so it just stuck. They they was the ones that was calling us memphis boys and i said well that sounds pretty good man that's what we are i guess
0: <laughs> i talked to reggie and he told me about playing the electric sitar he is such a laid-back guy
1: i guess he told you the story but uh we were doing a lot of atlantic work and uh i guess wexler and some of them from new york had sent us a bunch of instruments and stuff down there you know and uh just for us to try out and i think dan penn Opened one of the boxes and said, what is it there? <laughs> and uh, Reggie said, I don't know. He said, tune it up and see what it sounds like. And it was one of those old choral uh, sitars, you know. And he said, well, let's use that on this record. I guess it was kind of like a baby. It was first first uh, record the electric sitar was on, period. Well,
0: let me ask you this. How did you hook up with Garth?
1: Oh, B.J., was just a, he, he was just one of the guys. Still is today. He can, I just talked to him a couple of days ago. He calls there once in a while. He's like a brother. Uh, I guess Bob Doyle had found Garth uh, somehow. You know, I guess somebody had pitched some songs to him that Garth was doing and he was trying to write and all kind of stuff. And I guess he took it over and played it for Alan. And uh, so uh alan liked him too i mean he he said he thought he was he was good enough to start recording you know and so i just happened by there one day i I saw alan and and uh uh, bob Doyle standing out front talking at the studio you know and i just pulled in and just gonna say hi i'd stop here once in a while it was right on my way to my office you know and so uh uh Bob said, well, we were just talking about you, and I said, well, I'm sorry, man, he <laughs> said, so the conversation's come down to that, huh? <laughs> and uh, so he said, no, uh, Alan uh, made mention that uh, you would probably be a, a great member of putting the band together to back up Garth. And I said, well, great, man, I'm, I'm always happy to help anybody get started, you know, if I can. So, uh sure enough they booked uh some sessions later and I think we did four sides. Uh and uh I can't remember all of them now, it's been so long ago and that was nineteen eighty nine. And uh so uh I guess they played the stuff to uh Capital or some different labels and Capital uh decided they wanted to come in and listen to him and you know, and uh so they went and I uh, Got uh, most of us to do the um, showcase with him. Uh, we did it at one of the rental places out off of uh, West End, and uh, so uh, after that night, you know, uh, you know, I, I guess they they signed him uh, sometime along in that in that period, and and so uh, then it so happened that uh, not long after that, till they had a show here a tv show and i forget i don't know if it's nashville nights or what what it was called but it was over in the cannery and they'd had some somebody that was didn't show up for their tv show and they called bob dole and he said yeah i got a new guy and so they got most of the band together i mean there's only a couple couple of us that was not booked that night you know so we just ran down on the last minute's notice and, and we did uh i think it was two songs on that tv show and uh, I remember before I left the place, uh, some of the people that was running the show said the phone lines are still ringing. So the phone lines lit up. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yeah. So that was the beginning right there. He's an innovator, man. I mean, he believes in pushing limits, you know. And but I know, I, you know, Alan was a great producer and a great friend. And Alan was had a great ear for a song, and uh, I said, uh, and Alan had told him, I guess, when they first started, he said, well, let's see if it works, and he said, at any point, you know, if we get into it, and you decided you want to do something else, he said, I'm okay with that. He said, uh, you want to move on, that's fine, but that, that never happened, and uh, I don't know how many times, uh, of course, Alan, I guess, had told him about my my background in Memphis, you know, and as well as you know, in Nashville at that point, too, and he said, Bob has got a a wide range of music that he can pull from, you know, and he said, he just, he's a great ear and a person to have around, and so uh, Garson had said that he'd never envisioned himself uh, um, singing uh, with a keyboard, you know, and um, Bob came and told me one day, he said, I got to tell you something that Gar said about you the other day, and I said, What was that? He said, uh, He told me what he had said. He couldn't envision himself even singing with a keyboard in the band. He says, Now I can't hear it any other way. (laughs) He said, After Bobby came along, he said, He he, uh, he brings it home, you know, and I said, Well, I'm glad I do something. I said, Oh that's sweet, man. I said he's he's very kind. You know, I just I just feel like everything is uh uh I'm I'm placed in the places I'm supposed to be, you know, it's been that way for years. And uh, uh you know, I don't give myself that much credit. I just I just say, Well, thank you God, you know. Uh I'm I'm grateful. I'm just really grateful for her
0: everything well thank you bobby for sitting down and talking to me i appreciate it all right thank you you. bye next week i'm going to be talking to sid herring of the gants on memphis music interview memphis music history told from the inside i'm mitch mccracken and i hope to see you then